So, uh, welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for um, um, joining the five-minute update. This is going to be um, another uh, either a webinar or a podcast or both um, and, uh, for the high-tech sector of the LES licensing, that is the Licensing, licensing Executive Society of USA Canada. Um, and uh, we've got today... Um, John Carney, um, Amir Gavi, and uh, Jason Jason Schwartz, um, and I'm Dave Pausner. Topic today is a, a hot one, I guess, um, maybe too hot, which is uh, FTX and cryptocurrency. Um, <clears throat> I don't know about um, Amir. John and I, I know I dabble in it, and I know a little about it. John probably knows what I do in a more mirror. I don't know, but Jason is an expert. And so we will pepper him with questions and pretend to have a conversation. But in point of fact, we'll simply be um, learning from him as much as we can. So to get this thing going, uh, Jason, uh, tell us about cryptocurrency. What is it? And I think we're going <laughs> wow, we to start with that, that that's one. That's a loaded question right there. Very foundational, yeah. Yeah. I, well, well. So, so for those who aren't familiar with uh, with crypto, um, you can think of um, of cryptocurrency as uh, um, bits of information that are stored on a decentralized ledger. So, you know, whereas uh, when you have um, a checking account on your banking website, uh, what that means is that um, your bank has sort of uh, has its own internally maintained ledger uh, or, or database where it records, you know, the assets of each of its, you know, clients, and you have to trust the bank to properly record that data and, um, you know, properly correct that data as necessary. Uh, by contrast, at least, uh, you know, public blockchains, which are, you know typically what people are referring to when they refer to cryptocurrency are distributed ledgers. And um, the first public blockchain, at least the first you know, public blockchain at scale was Bitcoin. And really the only information recorded on that blockchain is how much Bitcoin each person has. So you know, there's this distributed ledger basically maintained by all of the users of the Bitcoin blockchain uh, collectively, you know, all of their computers basically are keeping track of the ledger at the same time. Um, and uh, those computers are keeping track of who owns what Bitcoin. More modern blockchains uh, enable um, en enable the uh, recordation and maintenance of records relating to all types of information. Uh, it can be cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, but it can also be uh, NFTs, um, which might represent um, IP rights and property, or um, you know, or, or images, or, or sort of title to property. Um, could be um, you know, sort of stock-like instruments. It could be uh, stable coins, which are you know, in theory, backed by uh, you know, real-world assets. Um, it could be uh, sort of credentials, like, like um, even your your social media data can be recorded on a blockchain like that. So um, Ethereum uh, is what is it? Ethereum is one of the is the um, the, the popular one of the, that flavor as opposed yes, to Bitcoin. Ethereum is is the uh, is, is the largest blockchain other than Bitcoin and by far the largest uh, smart contract blockchain, meaning that it can basically keep track of any information that you can imagine. So, um, so, so the 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 uh, appeal of 
at least Bitcoin and, and maybe Ethereum, but um, the appeal of Bitcoin, I gather, was its was the lack of information, or I guess two things, which is the lack of information, which is was also a little scary, uh, but also the fact that it reaches across um, reaches across borders and and you can do transactions worldwide, presumably yeah. quickly, <laughs> reasonably. Quickly. The, the, I would say I would say there there are three reasons that. Um, a blockchain's uh, sort of native tokens have value. Uh, and, and when I say native tokens, what I mean is whenever you set up a blockchain, there's one token that sort of represents that blockchain's native token, right? The, the token that that is, um, that 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 is, you could sort of think of it as the first token tradable on that blockchain or or the the currency of that blockchain on bitcoin you know the the token is synonymous with the blockchain it's bitcoin because again the bitcoin blockchain all it does is enable transfers of, of bitcoin and and the reason that bitcoin has value there, there, there are three reasons um number one um bitcoin can be held as a bearer asset uh, instead of through a financial institution. So, so that means that it's uh, people refer to that as permissionlessness, right? Um, you don't need the permission of some third party to hold Bitcoin. Um, like cash. Two, like like cash. cash, exactly. Um, number two, Bitcoin is freely transferable, uh, again, without needing an intermediary. So so in that sense, it's, it's trustless. So I can transfer Bitcoin to someone um, in another country. Uh, we don't have to agree to, to trust one of our, you know, our um, native financial institutions, um, which, you know, historically has been really, really difficult uh, for parties dealing, you know, let's say, you know, uh, China and the US or, or something, right. uh, you could sort of bypass uh, financial intermediaries. Number three um, is that uh, Bitcoin can cannot be frozen or seized. So it's censorship resistant. So permissionless, uh, trustless and censorship resistant are the three sort of core characteristics of a native crypto. Okay, so um, unlike um, sort of a, a regular country's uh, currency, which I think is called fiat currency, um, and however many countries there are, I think it's well above, was it around 200 or something or more, two something or other, 237, whatever. I think you're um, there are that many fiat currencies, presumably. Um, and then you've got all the exchange issues as well as the issues of there's probably I don't know if they're tariff issues, but I don't know. Can you walk in? Can you just fly into any country you want with a bunch of uh, U.S. dollars and or do you uh, do you run into customs in every country? I, they have to be declared. I, OK. Okay. Yeah, it'll depend on the country, but typically that there would be issues with uh, with transferring transferring fiat so currency. Bitcoin, at least Bitcoin, and all, and I assume all of the uh, cryptocurrencies try to avoid that. That is, cryptocurrencies are largely other than uh, was it Ecuador or something? Somebody recognizes cryptocurrency as a real currency, but other than them, um, cryptocurrencies you can move around with in your pocket, and you probably don't even have to move in order to use it in another country. Well, there's no concept of, of holding a crypto in your pocket because they're they're digital assets. Um, but but one uh, one benefit of uh, so so ownership of crypto when you um, when you self custody or or hold it as a bearer asset really means that there's a there's something analogous to a post office box, uh, which is you could think of it as like a locus on the blockchain, and and that's your sort of public 
that's like your public sort of um, tracker, right? If I want you to send something, some Bitcoin to me, I will give you my public address, right? Like my PO box. Um, and why is that mine? What does it mean for me to own the assets uh, at that locus? What it means is that I'm the only person who knows the password that enables me to move the assets that are there, right? Now, there are some real uh, concerns with that. Um, most, <laughs> the, the biggest concern is what that means is that if, if my password gets compromised, you know, if Amir learns my password, um, suddenly I'm not the owner anymore because he can go in and move, you know, that Bitcoin or, or that Ether or, you know, whatever the token is to his wallet. And that transaction would be irreversible. Right? Let me let me let me back this up. I think what I'm driving at and everyone else feel free to chime in is. There's this stuff out there, whether you call it's cryptocurrency, basically. Bitcoin's a famous one. There's the, there's this stuff out there, there a digital stuff out there that we're able to use as a form of currency that has a huge advantage. It has no, there's no shortage of disadvantages, but it's got a huge advantage over regular currency. It moves quickly through commerce um, within, at least within most countries, you can readily convert it to the local currency. And if you can't do it in your own country, you can do it in other, some other country and then use their fiat dollars to convert it to your own. So it's as good as money, um, though it can be a little more difficult to turn liquid. Um, and it's generally not trackable, so it's uh, I would a phrase be self-laundering. <laughs> um, I, I think I think it's an overstatement to say that it's not trackable. Um, the way I get onto you know the Ethereum blockchain is through a, a centralized exchange like Coinbase, and um, you know so I will transfer fiat into Coinbase. Um, that'll clear through Coinbase. Coinbase is just a regular U.S. financial institution. Um, I'll then, through Coinbase, uh, buy Ether, and then I'll transfer that Ether to self-custody, right, to my um, to my wallet or, or P.O. box, right? Um, you might not know the identity behind that wallet, right? Uh, my, my public wallet, for what it's worth, is called CryptoTaxGuy.e. So you might not happen to know that crypto tax guy is Jason Schwartz, but Coinbase certainly does because they've seen me withdraw my, um, my, my ether to that wallet. And if Coinbase does, then so does the US government, right? So I think it, it's a, a little bit of an overstatement to say that, that it, you know, it's, it's laundering. It's just um, the, the obfuscation of my um, identity behind a public key to the rest of the world just enables me to you know, retain my privacy vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the average citizen, but not Let's vis -vis explore that just before we go too much further. I don't want to get down on this rat hole, but when crypto came, was becoming popular a decade ago, two decades ago, I thought one of the big features was it was not trackable. And, and you're saying it is, not, it's not just you. I think I read in the Times the other day that in, in, I, it sounded like there, it takes a while, but the feds can track you, Bitcoin and everything else. It just sounds like a pain in the butt. And, uh, uh, but they get there. Yeah, they're they're getting there. Um, they're you know we can go again. This is a topic that that can last an entire you know another podcast because there are there are 
these privacy enhancing tools called uh, zero knowledge proofs that um, tornado cash was one example of that but OFAC sanctioned uh, tornado cash um, but there are other there are other things like Aztec uh, which is a layer two of ethereum there are entire blockchains built on zero knowledge proofs like Z, uh, Zcash and Monero and zero knowledge proofs basically enable you to um, better obfuscate your identity. Okay. Um, okay. Okay. That's that's good enough. So there's, so there's this stuff you can carry in your digital wallet, or you don't have to carry. Um, you can use it like currency. It can be a little more difficult to turn liquid. But on the other hand, some some people don't require uh, the liquid asset. You can sometimes pay for a bottle of uh, you can pay for gin, coke, and everything else. Um, the drinkable coke. Um, though maybe both forms are not drinkable, um, um, using this stuff, which is great. Um, so it has a lot of advantage. It has some weird aspect, which brings us a little closer to FTX, um, which is that its value is seemingly less stable, maybe not less stable than some fiat currencies, but less stable than the dollar. Um, and that's because not only is it, and this is the kind of confusing part, is not only does it seem like it can be used as a currency, it's also often invest, an investment for all that, the ups and downs. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, so, so, so in the case of, um, you know, ETH, so in the case of a, the, the native token of a blockchain, again, like Ether or Bitcoin, not only does it have the three uh, sort of characteristics, you know, trustlessness, permissionlessness, and censorship resistance that I described, but also the, the point of being a native uh, token is that it does have utility. The utility is that um, in order to actually do a transaction on the blockchain, like on Ethereum, you know, if I want to send you a stable coin, I, I have to pay a transaction fee to the network. And the transaction fee is denominated in ether so so in that sense ether has utility it's kind of it's it's literally gas that's why it's called ether it's, it's like the gas that runs the blockchain but what that means is that um i can speculate on ether by saying well the more people who use ethereum the blockchain the more valuable ether is going to be right so so in effect ether becomes this investment with in fact you know cash flows like fundamentals but you know the the a lot of this is speculative right uh, we're, we're all sort of looking 10 years into the future and uh, you know and, and making bets on how how many people are going to use ethereum in the blockchain and accordingly how valuable ether you know ought to be okay so that and so the appeal to a lot so the, the appeal of uh blockchain currency or cryptocurrency to some people is it's uh Ready transfer, ready transferability, use worldwide, et cetera, et cetera. Also, the potential upside of it is, is this value can go up many fold in in one day. Um, usually doesn't, and it can also go down in one day. Um, when you talk about utility, it reminds me of some, at least uh, the SEC, uh, that is the regulatory aspects. But I don't think that's what you're driving at. But it turns out that the Feds. Um, I don't know, at least the U.S. federal government, I assume the European governments and the like are the same. The feds are probably less care about crypto's um, sort of 
um, cash and currency aspect, but are much more concerned about its um, security aspect, which is people get into it. Maybe they get into it so they can do transactions on the dark web. Um, but some people are, and a lot of people are getting into it because its value can go up so readily. And yet it doesn't seem to be a regulated security, though it's people are buying it and they think it's a security. Um, the feds aren't able to regulate it like one is, or at least they're not willing to yet, I gather. Um, and they may get there because it has both security aspects and currency aspects. And sort of therein lies the problem with it. Is that a, a, a fair summary, which is it's got to be both things which are typically highly regulated and yet the feds can't get their handle on it a handle on it and so they're unwilling to recognize it at all well take well, that I, yeah i mean there was a, i think there was a lot in in what you just said but but i i will i, I will note so so you know there there are these rules right the, the securities rule and i'm a tax lawyer by the way not a securities lawyer but i, I know enough security is allowed to be dangerous um and basically you know if if something is a security um, or, or investment contract, um, then it's subject to all these, you know, regulations around disclosure, and the issuer has to, you know, has to provide disclosure to investors, and um, uh, you know, and has to has to provide that sort of periodically, and has to avoid conflicts of interest and, and what have you. Um, now, what is an investment contract or security? Um, an investment contract or security is a um, and you know, investment or contract or scheme uh, involving an investment of money and a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. Okay, that's called the Howey test, and everyone in crypto, uh, you know, uh, can sort of recite the Howey test uh, by heart at this point. The problem with, or not not a problem, but but the the um, the issue you run into in analyzing whether a token, and particularly a token like Ether is a security, is that because it's decentralized, it's not clear that there's a one, any contracts transaction of scheme. In other words, there's no sort of central body promising that Ether's value is going to go up or that they're going to, you know, they're going to, um, you know, some, some issuing company is going to do stuff that improves the value of Ether. Ether is so decentralized, you or I or anyone can join the Saturday morning calls among developers talking about like what the next steps ought to be for the Ethereum ecosystem. Anyone can participate. So it's not clear that there's any sort of contract or transaction or scheme. Um, there's certainly an investment of money, not clear that there's any common enterprise and not clear that there's any sort of efforts of others. It's more efforts of the community. Um, there's, you know, lots more I can say about that. So you're like, addressing what you're addressing is why uh, at least the Securities and Exchange Commission here and probably in Europe, their equivalent or equivalents are unwilling to treat it like the, a regular security and regulate it at all. No, I would say I would I would say that differently. Gary Gensler repeatedly asserts that virtually all virtual currencies are securities and he's not going to you know the SEC is not going to provide additional guidance on you know how to deal with crypto because the guidance has existed for 90 years and the law is what it is the fact of the matter is though that in fact 
there's a real question as to whether tokens are securities. Um, you know, many tokens, I would say, aren't. Uh, I would say Ether is likely not a security. Bitcoin is likely not a security. Um, number two, um, even if you determine that a token was a security, the current rules for disclosure are, are simply, uh, um, you know, don't don't work for crypto. Like it's actually it's unclear who the issuer is. It's unclear, you know, who's supposed to provide disclosure. It's unclear what kind of disclosure ought to be provided. Um, so so the fact of the matter is that the regulators. Um, you know, ha have just demonstrated in the U.S. largely um, an unwillingness to engage with the community. And I think it's a dramatic failure on the part of U.S. regulators. I would well, actually minute, say that the European so, regulators have done a lot better. So, so okay, so that's a great point, which is, at least from the U.S. perspective, it is a security because people are buying it under the, what is it, Howie or Howie test. People yeah, are the, the SEC has not actually provided, um, as far as I can tell, a good argument for why they passed the Howey test. Um, only um, sort of broad statements by Chair Gary Gensler that um, that these are securities. And, and in fact, Gary Gensler, in his statements, ha has sort of ignored the Howey test and just said people are buying them with the expectation of profit. So they're securities. OK, which is kind so of when, unbelievable because that would make like any commodity like oil or gold a security. And we know that it's not. OK, but but be that as it may, they're treating it as a security. And the so I guess then since it's a security, it must be regulated. But they're on uh, the the U.S., the SEC is unwilling to, though it's a regulated item, they're unwilling to let an exchange that is a uh, some sort of marketplace where these things can come and go. Um, they're willing to un what unwilling to um, put their stamp of approval um, on, say, FTX or Ethereum or any of the others, even and which they theoretically could do if they would accept a registration. And is that what leads us out of the country to the Bahamas with FTX? It largely is, yeah. So, so I mean, we do have a, a you know, we do have U.S. exchanges, right? We have Coinbase, um, you know, I think Kraken, Gemini. Those are U.S. exchanges. Oh, they are. Okay. They're they're all operating under, um, you know, kind kind of this 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 you know fear that they're operating this illegal exchange. Now, now, what's somewhat you know ironic is that notwithstanding the SEC's constant you know, uh, or at least Chair Gensler's constant, um, you know, attacks uh, saying that crypto is all securities. The SEC has not gone after these exchanges uh, for, you know, for offering securities, uh, unregistered securities in violation of the law. Instead, so they did what the not... SEC has done is gone after um, uh, parties and sort of asserted baldly that, you know, securities, um, that, that's certain crypto is security. So for example, there was an insider trading case um, involving a former Coinbase employee um, and the SEC, uh, you know, filed uh, charges against that person for wire fraud and securities fraud, asserting that a number of the tokens that that person was trading in were securities. And those tokens are offered by Coinbase. 
But neither Coinbase nor the um, anyone related to those tokens was named a party to that um, to that uh, uh, action by the SEC. So you're so saying no that actually able to defend themselves. You're saying that. So uh, I'm I'm certainly no securities lawyer, but I gather that if you want to register a security, you've got to file. But big chunk of paperwork. Yeah, You're saying yeah. Coinbase and the like did not do that? Correct. Then why is FTX in the Bahamas? Well, what was uh, FTX? I, I think there, there are a few answers to that. So, so number one is there is an entity, FTX US, that is located in the United States. And um, US people were permitted to open accounts at FTX US and, and did. Lots of US people had accounts with FTX US. The main sort of main FTX or, or the FTX that had the most amount of global business was in the Bahamas. Um, and one of the reasons is that um, is that in addition to its sort of saber rattling around cryptos being securities, the SEC has also um, not permitted uh, the offering of certain um, yield bearing products by um, exchanges. Uh, and in fact, you know, uh, did not permit Coinbase to offer a yield-bearing product that they applied for, um, you know, sued uh, and won uh, uh, or settled against uh, BlockFi uh, for a huge amount of money for offering a yield-bearing product. So, the, so in general, it's very difficult to compete against other exchanges if you're in the U.S. and those non-U.S. exchanges are offering products that simply can't be offered in the U.S., Okay, so do the so FTX is a what's the difference between an exchange and a a cryptocurrency? Yeah, so so remember how we talked about um, you know self custody means basically that I have my PO box and I have you know the key to that PO box. The key being this very long password. And the best way to um, make sure that that password doesn't get compromised is I literally write it down, the pen and paper, right? I don't put it in an email or anywhere where it could get hacked. I write it down with a pen and paper. Can and you show us? <laughs> and then I store and then I store that information in a safe at home or, um, you know, maybe ironically in a safety deposit box at a bank or something. Um, now, a lot of people simply don't want to undertake that bit of operational security, right? They don't, they don't trust themselves to uh, securely store their password or, or they're just too lazy, right? Like they, they don't want to deal with opening up their own, um, you know, PO box effectively, their own crypto wallet and writing down the password. So, and maybe those people, you know, heard about crypto from, you know, their friends and heard that it might be a way to make a quick buck. And they just want exposure to the crypto without actually having to do the work of uh, self-custodying it. And for those people, a centralized exchange seems to make a lot of sense, right? It's just like your Fidelity account holding stocks. You're very accustomed to the notion of someone else holding something for you. Um, and, and if you're not really like part of the whole crypto ethos of you know, self-sovereignty, but you just want to see the number go up, it might make sense to just ask FTX to buy crypto for you and keep a private ledger in which they, you know, say, 
Jason Schwartz owns five ETH, right? What's a um, distributed exchange versus a centralized exchange? Where does FTX fit into that? Yeah, so, so there, there, I mean, there are such things as decentralized exchanges that um, w w that use basically smart contracts or software programs to enable me to, you know, exchange ETH for a stable coin and vice versa, um, you know, trade tokens. Those are all done purely self-custodially with no intermediary. And, you know, we can go through the tech, but I, it's not that important for this podcast, I think. Um, you know, what's more important to understand is just that if if I'm in self-custody, I'm able to do stuff with my tokens, basically banking things, um, without ever relying on a centralized intermediary to do them. And I can literally see where my tokens are on the blockchain at all times. And the only way that I can sort of like lose my tokens is if there's a bug in the system, right? Um, or if I lose my password, if I lose my private key. By contrast, when you're dealing with centralized intermediaries like FTX or like Voyager or like Celsius um, or like BlockFi, um, or Coinbase. you have to trust that they are actually holding the crypto on your behalf that they claim to be holding on your behalf. So you're oh, back okay. to relying on a banking system, which crypto, you know, is just sort of ironic because crypto was intended to allow people to, um, to get out of the banking system. Well, I, keep, I read an article um, last week or the week before, what do they call the crypto family? And they posted a picture of themselves all looking very uh, tan, um, blonde and tan on a beach. Um, and then as you read the article, you realized this guy had to stash, uh, he uh, doesn't believe in exchanges. Um, and so he talked and he's apparently started investing. He put all of his savings in, was it 2007 or six or five or something into this stuff. So he's, I guess, quite wealthy by crypto standards. Um, but he, the way he lives is apparently he uh, either owns whole islands or he has portions of islands all around the world. And he buries his password like a squirrel in all those places and it sounds like wherever he lives at the moment must be heavily guarded so that somebody can't come in and uh, uh, pull his fingernails out and ask what the current password is so that I mean, I gotta tell you that makes the whole notion of a of decentralization sound less appealing to me I think I'd rather walk down to the bank yeah I mean that there are there are many other uh, options right so so like th there are now um, there are now uh, wallets that include something called social recovery, where you know I can name, you know, let's say the three of you to be the guardians of my. I wouldn't trust John. Right, but and and you know there 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 are ways to ensure that tech is developing to enable you know to to allow people to recover passwords if they lose okay. them. Um, or, or like ha have you know have their tokens transferable to a new wallet if they lose their password or whatever. But yeah, I mean in in the old days, meaning you know as little as a year ago even, um, really the only option was to write down your password. Right. Okay. Um, so how how did Sam? Is it Bankman Freed or Freed Bankman? No, no, Bankman Freed. Bankman Freed. How did, or of FTX? How did he get into this mess? And I'm, to jump ahead, he's in the Bahamas with this what un, completely unregulated company hanging out in a beach house with these kids. Um, and uh, the Bahamas has no control of that, or what's the deal? <laughs> um, okay, so 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 SBF. Um, uh, 
realized that there was a need for or, or a desire, I should say, for crypto exchanges. Right. So, so you know, he 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 actually made several million dollars doing an arbitrage trade. He he was a trader before being a crypto guy, and in fact, by his own admission, he was never really a crypto guy. He um he he sort of proudly declared on many podcasts that he just went wherever the money was. Um, he he also uh you know sort of painted himself you know many times to the public as like this Robin Hood type figure. I'm going to make all of this money because I want to give it all away to charity. Um, so so SPF uh made several million dollars on an arbitrage trade whereby he would buy tokens on one exchange and then sell them, you know, at a spread on another exchange and it required like opening an account in Asia and whatever. It was like somewhat, somewhat complicated, but, you know, he, it was a well-known, it was a well-known trade actually um, that I was recently in, in Korea and, and actually people were, were sort of telling me that they did the same thing on a smaller scale than SPF, but, um, you know, but, but he had more money to start with. So he made more money and then he invested that money into FTX and uh and and ftx you know he built ftx as this uh sort of responsible crypto exchange right um right apparently they really were yeah yeah um at this so so you know the the point of ftx was that they were the the sort of main point uh or the the selling point for retail investors was that ftx would custody your crypto for you and it also offered some you know yields uh products and whatnot but but like at, at its heart the idea was that it was supposed to be a broker dealer for crypto just as fidelity is for your stocks um so so um at the same time uh sam bankman fried also ran or or founded um a uh, a hedge fund called alameda research um, Alameda Research, um, you know, ended up uh, being run by um, by uh, supposedly FTX's ex-girlfriend uh, Caroline Ellison, um, and then now this is uh, I'm mentioning this because you asked about you know these these like frat you know this frat uh, frat, frat house person we we'll call them frat persons now yeah yeah frat um, person so person. So, yeah. so you know SBF and Caroline and you know a group you know, group of others uh, allegedly, uh, you know, shared a home in the Bahamas um, from which they ran FTX and Alameda Research. Um, and the, you know, the Al uh, and and I'll give you like a, a very like uh, speed run through the recent history. Um, in the wake of you know the collapse of several other you know exchanges, so it's so Terra Luna, um, Voyager, Celsius, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, um, Sam Bankman-Fried sort of emerged as this you know white knight over the course of the summer because FTX started bidding on um, a lot of these you know soured assets. Uh, that, that came out really came out of the collapse of the Terra Luna ecosystem, uh, which occurred in May, um, and uh, and and built a lot of goodwill for himself. Uh, he also uh, started, you know, he, he named the he bought the naming rights to the Miami Heat Arena, or it became FTX Arena. Um, so so Sam Beckman Fried was kind of on this publicity tour over the summer, building a lot of goodwill for himself. He. 
sort of took a bit of a misstep, I think. Um, you know, <laughs> um, when when uh, when uh, I guess in October, September, October, he uh, published a, a series of you know thought pieces, I guess, R really really one blog followed up with a bunch of tweets on responsible crypto regulation, and also you know appeared before Congress to talk about it, and appeared on a number of podcasts and. Um, in you know those thought pieces and on those podcasts, uh, SBF started advocating for basically a gate kept uh, decentralized finance uh, world, where um, instead of my being able to go to a decentralized exchange and uh, you know swap my tokens um, under SBF's sort of rubric, it would be effectively illegal to host a website that gave me access to one of those exchanges. I'd still be able to use it because it's all on the blockchain, but it would have to be technically adept enough to be able to use it without someone else providing a website that gave me access. Um, Sam Bankman fried said, oh, um, you know, those websites should be licensed. And what a lot of people pointed out was that, you know, he would be the one holding the licenses because he, as an exchange founder, would be the only one with the resources, really, to obtain those licenses. And it also emerged that SPF was meeting with Cherry Gary Gensler of the SEC, um, basically, you know, promoting this idea. And he also was uh, a very um, vocal proponent of um, the uh, a piece of legislation that um, that that would have you know, accomplish this goal of basically gatekeeping the decentralized finance community. Um, so, you know, the, the, the bloom sort of started to fall off the rose at that point. And then on November 2nd of 2022, so, you know, wh whatever, a, a month, month and a half ago, almost yeah. ago yeah. Um, Coindesk published a um, uh, FTX's balance sheet details, right? And, and, um, and the balance sheet details suggested some inappropriate relationship between FTX and Alameda Research, right? It suggested that maybe FTX had been sending a bunch of money over to Alameda Research. Maybe in the absence of the sort of misstep that I just described, that would have been kind of swept under the rug. But I, I think people were kind of at that point already looking for, they were already sort of grown suspicious of SBF as maybe not really aligned with the ethos of the crypto community. On November 6th, the CEO of Binance, which is another exchange, and in fact, the largest exchange in the world, um, and FTX was second before, before it blew up. Um, the CEO of Binance, uh, who goes by CZ, um, I can't pronounce his actual first name. Uh, he's of, of Chinese uh, heritage. Um, CZ uh, announced on Twitter that as an early investor in FTX, um, CZ had a bunch, like $2 billion worth of FTT tokens. Now, FTT tokens are basically, they're, um, they're like uh, coupons to use FTX, right? Like you have FTT tokens and you can use those to pay uh, trading fees on FTX. So they're not equity in FTX, but they're equity-like, right? Like the, the more people want to use FTX, in theory, the more valuable FTT tokens are. Typically, if you want to dispose of $2 billion worth of some already fairly illiquid asset, you don't announce it to the world, right? So it, it was sort of interesting that CZ announced this on Twitter uh, before actually disposing of any FTT tokens. Um, what happened uh, after he announced this was 
what some people refer to as a run on the bank, but that's actually a misnomer because remember FTX was not supposed to be a bank in that they weren't supposed to be doing fractional reserves. They were supposed to be custodying people's property one-to-one, right? But what did occur was people started withdrawing from FTX because I, I think as a result of CZ's tweet and a few follow-up tweets where he did overtly kind of analogize FTX to Terra, um, which again, had blown up in May, um, people sort of felt like maybe CZ knows something and you know decided to sort of test FTX, basically. Um, Caroline Ellison, meanwhile, tweeted, I'll buy all your FTT for, I think it was $23 or something. And that, of course, you know, exacerbated the run because people people started thinking, well, what's so special about that price point, right? Once you sort of announce a price point, the short the short sellers are going to go start testing that, um, you know, that, that support uh, level. So that's what happened. And by um, November 8th, Binance and FTX announced publicly via Twitter that Binance had a non-binding letter of intent to buy FTX. So it's a very, very quick uh, you know, uh, wave of destruction that washed over uh, FTX. Um, November 9th, so just one day later, Binance announced that it was walking away from the deal. Um, and that's when people realized that something had gone really, really horribly wrong um, because, you know, one day worth of, uh, of uh, due diligence for Binance to walk away from the deal, you know, was, was, is very troubling. November 11th, FTX filed for bankruptcy um, in the U.S. SBF stepped down as CEO and the Financial Times reported that FTX held only $900 million in liquid assets against nine to $10 billion of liabilities. Um, and then on November 12th, a wave of unauthorized transactions drained several hundred million dollars more from FTX. Uh, there <laughs> apparently was some kind of backdoor. Uh, again, this is all just public you know, allegations, but apparently there was a backdoor that enabled someone, you know, we don't know who, to- um, it, it was John, it was John, John Carney. <laughs> Thank you. Like I can reveal it here, you heard it here first. <laughs> um, I wish it was that of, rich. That's sort of where we are. So, so you know, basically, it, it you know, it, it came out that um, FTX did in fact have, well, allegedly, an inappropriate relationship with Alameda, whereby it was effectively taking customer deposits and using those to lend to Alameda to backstop Alameda against the losses that Alameda appears to have incurred in connection with Crypto Winter, which began when the Terra when Terra Luna uh, collapsed in May. Okay, so to jump forward, um, let's see, SBF, uh, I'm sorry, no, I'm using his initials. Um, uh, in any event, John Carney did tell us uh, that he's, not he, John, but SBF is on his way to um, a jail in Manhattan. And so um, I guess that's the quick end of that story. So there will be criminal, if not, uh, well, it sounds like criminal uh, charges uh, as well as civil, and uh, it may um, bring in his family and a whole bunch of others. And I'm, I, I think I gather his parents or at least his father's involved, and at least the Wall Street Journal has been writing that the uh, this may reach further than SBF and, and his- um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, he's up on five charges. He waived extradition, so he's going to Brooklyn, and he, he's gonna be in jail. It was wire fraud, conspiracy, securities fraud, securities, fraud, conspiracy, money laundering, uh, 
And I think campaign finance is next on the list. But I don't want to make this political, but you'd have to be like an ex-president to have those charges against you. Well, and, we and at, the, at the end of the day, he was the second leading contributor to the Democratic Party after, well, George, after George Soros for the midterms. So it's got everything that the journalist community loves. This is like catnip for journalists. It's got money. It's got new technology. It's got politics. It's got all these things. And, yeah, and, there, again, and there was there was a considerable amount of you know commentary uh, among sort of you know the crypto natives regarding how um, you know how, how how like carefully the the journalists like tread when they were reporting about SBF. Like a lot of the headlines said stuff like. Um, you know, FTX collapse means that, you know, Sam Bankman frieds dreams of donating to charity, you know, are, are not going to come to fruition. Things like that, where, where like rather than focusing on this alleged massive fraud, yeah. you know, the journalists were sort of focused more on SPF's good deeds, which um, people found very suspicious. Well, OK, so now um, we're going to tell Amir he's on mute. And uh, give him a little warning there. And uh, where John's already unmuted. Um, to what extent this is a, this this uh, this uh, uh, recording is is uh, being done under the auspices of the Licensing Executive Society. So so the question is, what does this have to do with licensing at all? And so I will throw this question in to the both of you. To what extent? Should a and this is a stretch, but but we're trying to make sure our sponsor is happy. Um, um, to what extent should a uh, party to a here we go a license, so it would be a license or a licensee, worry that the other party um, doesn't merely run the usual risks of uh, foreclosure, bankruptcy, or other sort of financial disruption, which is I hope reasonably accounted for um, in our boilerplate. Uh, sort of foreclosure provisions, but do you need are are there special steps that somebody should take? For example, uh, uh, at least getting a rep and warranty, whatever good that would do, that your I'll call you business partner or the other folks on the other side of the table are not heavily into crypto. Here we go. I got a question out. I've been thinking about for a while. I pulled it in. Amir, we're going to ask you first because I'm sure you have not thought about this at all. So let's hear you mumble and mumble for a bit. Well, no, I mean, I, I think the issue is it depends it depends on the type of company. I mean, actually, I mean, Jason knows we work together on, on a number of transactions where this is actually the cent central issue uh, where, where Jason and I have sort of worked together to understand the targets, um, you know, nature and use of of crypto. And um, in, in some cases, we've we've had some pretty strong follow up questions uh, and conclusions and, and you know, have thought that you know maybe this is this is not um, what what the you know what what the people promulgating this technology say it is. What I think the biggest impact. So I think it's less of a diligence um, uh, exercise in that respect because I think you typically are going to know that the companies that will ultimately cease doing business. Um, it's generally the case that crypto will be uh, front and center in their business plan. So I don't think there will be hidden surprises for licensees. I think the bigger risk or issue are for people who have announced you know, plans around digital assets or digital transformations. The real question is, what, what, what do the Fortune 500 
right, think about this crypto winter and the chill and what does it mean for their digital transformation plans? What does it mean for digital assets going forward? Is the class of the digital asset dead? Um, I think you would hear, you know, Jason say no. I, I also think the answer is is no. Um, I, I think it's it's a part of a an evolution. I mean, look, um, you know, all of us involved in high tech. I, I've been in, involved in disruptive technologies my entire career. There is a life cycle. I haven't met the disruptive technology which grows in a linear fashion, right? So I, I think. Um, what what is what is more what is a little bit different about crypto is um, the fact that you had it, there there began to be a number of speculators involved in the ecosystem and we didn't we haven't really seen that with other technologies per se um, we saw analogs of it with with the you know in the late 90s with internet but it was you didn't have people speculating per se on you know servers or hard drives um or like internet bandwidth although it want to you know qualify that because you kind of did in some respects but but broadly speaking people were not speculating on the internet right or the idea yeah, yeah. of connected services here you had a lot of speculation on um real or imagined underlying assets themselves and i think that's what makes this a little bit different um and that's where it, it's worth going back to jason's um bifurcation of what we're talking about are we talking about tokens like just tokens uh such as bitcoin right which has again i'm we're both gonna get in trouble for this but no real utility other than that the you know being a, a a purported you know fiat currency and something like ethereum which is sort of you know built in its dna this notion of utility and ability to use uh that that token to register information on a blockchain and and so you know what what we're seeing in the market now so what does all this mean what we're seeing in the market now is that the crypto natives right those who are really in this ecosystem um those who are building technologies and platforms to the extent that they can still afford to do that are are continuing what i think you're seeing are the people outside of that circle of crypto natives the onlookers who are who are looking into the circle um they're taking a step back so you're seeing licensees of platforms licensees of information um, you know, we I, I represent um, uh, you know a, a few wallets, um, and and so you know digital wallets, and so a lot of times this technology will not have been um, developed by by the you know by by people who are uh, providing wallet services. They will license the underlying technology and and then you know re uh, make that available to customers. You know, you're seeing demand for those types of things. Um, decrease. You're seeing again less of the Fortune 500 interested in making this this quick and immediate conversion using crypto per se. Um, what you know, what will happen in the future will will be, I think, that uh, digitization and technology will move forward. Right. This is just sort of one facet of a digital technology. Um, uh, advancement and and you'll see 
digital assets, I think, broadly move forward, it may not look exactly like it did in 2021 uh, or 2020. But I, I think, you know, you've got the visas, the MasterCards, you've got traditional banks, those who, who had been playing a game of catch up. I think they have a little bit more time now. And I think you, you have the ability for um, people looking to implement these technologies you have the ability to be a little bit more thoughtful about the implementations. But I think, you know, statements such as, you know, announcing that the death of digital assets, uh, that that's probably overblown. Okay. Let me get this question in because we're going to lose Jason. Um, John, am I correct that you have done deals where uh, international deals where the currency was not dollars, but was actually, I think you said it was Bitcoin. Incorrect. China specifically outlaws Bitcoin transactions, so you can't use Bitcoin in China. Between 2019 and 2020, there was capital flight coming out of Asia, and the Chinese government carefully controls currency. So, Any cryptocurrency? Did you have any deal that used cryptocurrency as the transaction? I have, I have, gone, I have gone to cocktail parties, sir, in China where co digital currency was discussed, but it was always on a personal basis. Oh. No, no, no deals that I'm aware of use currency that that's not sanctioned by the full faith and credit of of a national government. So okay, so let's redo this pod. Let's redo this podcast in ten years, and we'll revisit that question. Yeah, yeah I mean, at, at the end of the day, people were using it to circumvent the fifty thousand dollar limit, and and people that had huge amounts of money tied up in real estate in China and could only move fifty thousand a year. We're, we're locked from doing that. You needed four approvals to move currency. I mean, I did a $100 million deal involving the sale of a Delphi business. It took four approvals from the Chinese government to move that kind of money. And it's because they want to regulate the flow of, of hard currency out of China. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll, um, well, the show notes, to the extent they exist, will uh, show our LinkedIn links and uh, uh, appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Yeah.